Let's pray together as we turn to God's Word again. Father, thank you so much for, for this morning. Thank you for the time to preach your Word. Grateful for, uh, for your preserved Word. Father, I pray for this body as they transition, uh, that you would preserve unity here, that your Spirit would be at work among them, that they would be centered on your gospel as the central and most important thing among them that they have in common. Bless them as they go about the work of, of uh, searching for a new pastor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2012, a 29-year-old man named David Austin made the leap to off-grid living. He wanted to prove that he could live independently of other people for a whole year, so he ventured off into the Scottish Highlands on December 29th. Tragically, Austin survived just a few days. Officially, he died of overexposure and hypothermia. But in the action that led to his death, often, uh, or Austin reflects a lot of our modern mindset, namely that we don't need other people and that we're strong enough to survive on our own. And the recent pandemic has only inflamed that situation, making us lonelier than ever and potentially more inclined to pull away rather than to push in to other people. Well, that trend has been going on a while in the American church. It did not begin with COVID. 63% of Americans claim to be Christians. However, only 24% of those attend church on a regular basis. Christianity has become the off-grid religion of the United States, where we're more apt to pull away rather than to push in. But that's not the way that God intended it to be. Life in the community of believers is meant to be the norm. It's not to be neglected, but so much more. It is meant to be a reflection of the way that we are loving God himself. In Galatians, Paul calls a Christian church back to hope in the gospel. They're a church that's turned from the gospel and they've run toward law. And in the process of doing that, they've lost their love for each other, and they've lost their love for God. And Paul calls on them to live as the loving community of the people of God because of the gospel, because of that unity that they have. He tells them that the body is given to them as a grace to reveal how the gospel is being applied in their life. In short, he tells them that if you're, if you're comparing yourself, if you're dealing harshly with others, then you're not living in light of the gospel that you profess. In this way, Paul shows that the way you handle your relationships is a direct reflection of how you're loving God and how loved you feel by God because of the gospel. If you have your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be beginning in verse 13, and we'll work through verse 26, Galatians 5, 13 to 26. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Paul calls us back in this text to a love for the church, showing us that if we do not love others, we're not living in light of a love for God that comes from the gospel. So I ask you as we look at this text, how well do you do at loving others? Do you believe that loving others is important to you? Or do you treat it as an obstacle or others as a tool for self-gratification, perhaps? Are you finding yourself more inclined to lean into the church or to lean away from the church? When Jesus is asked in the Gospels what, most important, what the most important law is by the religious leaders of his day, he tells them that the most important commandment is to love God with all that you are. But he doesn't stop there. He says that the second is like it, that you are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. How is it that that second commandment is like the first? Well, these two commands, I don't think by coincidence, echo Paul's flow of thought through Galatians chapter 5, first showing that the primary work of obedience is loving God in the gospel and that loving God is the work of the gospel. And then in this text, he shows that loving God directly corresponds to our love for each other. Paul is showing us how that works in at least three ways in our text. The first way he shows us is that loving others indicates a love for God. Loving others indicates a love for God. You know, some things run the risk of being so well-known that we never really understand their meaning. You know what I mean by that? Uh, Songs can be great examples of that. The popular ones can get played and played and played over and over again, and, and you think that you know the lyrics, but we never really understand what they're saying. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, take uh, Elton John's classic song, Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. You know that one? <laughs> or maybe that Credence Clearwater Revival song, There's a Bathroom on the Right. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> you can hear those songs a thousand times, but you'll never understand them if you get the lyrics wrong. Well, the fruit of the Spirit, which is what we often refer to this text in Galatians as, tends to run that same risk. It's a well-known passage. Do you know the song? 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Somebody asked me if I was going to sing this morning. I said, no, I just did. I won't do any more, I promise. We're very familiar with this passage. Well, Paul didn't suddenly come to Galatians chapter 5 and decide to pen a song about the fruit of the Spirit. It comes as a part of a larger argument, and contextually it's all framed around the way that we love others. Uh, Look at the text again. Verse 13, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then we come to the fruit of the flesh, and then we see the fruit of the Spirit, and then he frames it on the other end by saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. That's an interpretive clue for us, church, that the fruit of the Spirit operates within the confines of human relationships. This chapter starts with the way in which you love God. And then it ends with the necessary fruit of that that comes in the way that you love others. That makes sense. After all, God loves his people, and if you love God, so will you love his people. If I love God, I will love others, and I cannot love God without loving his people any more than I can love the New England Patriots without loving Tom Brady. Is it too soon for that? Choose another any more than I can love my wife without loving her personality. That means that your love of God will not remain private. Just as loving your wife means loving all of her, so loving God means loving what he loves. And it means that your love of God is displayed in his community of people, which means that you need to be in the community of believers in order to see the fruit. Do you see that? You cannot leave the church behind. That matches the testimony of all of Scripture, which says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, in First John. And in him there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Jesus says in John 13, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The fruit of loving God is first shown as a love for his people. That's what Paul is saying here. Loving others indicates our love for God. But that's not where he stops. He also says that loving others is impossible without a love for God. Loving others is impossible without a love for God. You know, pastors and preachers make sensational claims all the time. Is what I said true? Well, don't ignore that one. It's a sensational claim, yes, untrue, no. If loving God directly corresponds, or if loving others directly corresponds to our love for God, then the inverse must be true. And I believe that's what Paul is saying here. Look back at Paul's argument, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not 
or you are not under the law. Uh, Paul compares the fruit of the Spirit to the fruit of the flesh in this passage. He, he says that the fruit of the flesh leads to all sorts of ways in which we don't love one another. There's enmity, there's strife, there's jealousy, there's fits of anger, there's rivalries, dissensions, envy, and divisions. And we can see how those things would cause us not to love one another when we're engaging in them. And then he goes on to sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery. And Paul says that all of it compromises and kills our love for others, our love for each other. He's saying that the flesh is contrary to the spirit. That means that the fruit of the flesh that kills our loves for others is the only thing that the flesh can produce. So then according to Scripture, it's true. Just as we're born with desires that oppose God in our sinful nature, we're born opposing others as well and not loving them. But is that true to life? Well, the classic example is children. No one teaches children how to be naughty, right? They take from each other. They bite and they scratch to get what they want. They're not angels. You know that if you have any. They're bags of sin. They're fun and you love them, but you know that the reality is that they're born sinful. And by the way, those children that are so cute, uh, they grow up to be you, don't they? Those childlike sins of stubbornness over bedtime and selfishness with toys that seem to begin so innocently, they blossom as an adult into sexual immorality, into idolatry, into everything else that Paul mentions here. And no one has to teach you to be that way, do they? You wake up desiring sexual immorality. You wake up desiring idolatry, looking for that idol that will keep your attention. You wake up searching for enmity, something to envy, searching out strife and jealousy, prone to fits of anger, All of these are the fruit of the flesh, says Paul. No one puts those things on. And while you may be able to contain some of those outcomes in your life without a love for God, they do tend to leak out of us, don't they? Because we have a craving for what the flesh gets us. And it gets us gratification. It gets us acceptance, perceived peace, all of which we apply within our relationships. See, relationships without a love for God are built upon your own benefit. Maybe you think I'm exaggerating or oversimplifying, but I think it's common to spiritualize our desires, to spiritualize our relationships. The truth is that we're very capable of deceiving ourselves in this. We see a path, it feels good, it looks good, and we go down it because it seems good to us. The desires of the flesh and the spirit are against each other. You want to do the things of the flesh. No one is an exception from this. We all have fleshly desires that are contrary to the spirit. And they're not weak desires. They're strong desires. Desires that are in our own self-interest and tend to run against the good pleasure of God's will desires that resist pressing into the church, making excuses, that church is a mess, maybe it's in the interest of health to pull away, 
whatever it is. You may think that naturally you're a loving person without God, but Paul says that your flesh is manipulative and self-seeking and far from virtuous in its own ability. The truth is that we're more like Lenny Small uh, from Of Mice and Men. Are you familiar with Of Mice and Men? Lenny Small is a character who dreams of having a ranch of rabbits. That's his great dream in the book. He loved the way that rabbits felt. He loved to pet them. Unfortunately, Lenny Small is an imposing character, large in frame, and he could not control his own strength, and so he kills everything that he touches. And so when he tries to pet rabbits, that one thing that he desires, he only ends up killing them. In your flesh, Paul is saying, you're like Lenny Small. For all your good intentions, you can only destroy. You want to love, but you have only a capacity to destroy in the flesh. That's the way we're born. Consider the way in which the world tries to love. It expresses love in affirmation. The fleshly world affirms, for example, the homosexual lifestyle, and it calls that affirmation love. But that lifestyle is a disaster. In the end, it leads to death. To, to affirm that is not to love, but to destroy. Only by the Spirit, then, can we love graciously and pointedly with the gospel. All of our best efforts look like destruction in loving others without the gospel. They're only an attempt, however, to gain something from others. But by the Spirit, we have a new nature one that comes through the gospel and is applied by the Spirit as we live in light of the gospel. Only in that nature can we truly love others because it is the only one capable of loving God. Walk by the Spirit with intention then, with application of the gospel. Then you will love others. Evidence of the gospel or of gospel deficiency then is when we become users of others. Loving others indicates that we have a love for God. Loving others is impossible without loving God. And finally, loving others is visible when we are loving God. Loving others is visible when we are loving God. Paul continues in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul is saying here that Love for your neighbor that comes from the gospel work of loving God is not some mushy, nostalgic type of love. It's not a, a locket that you wear around your neck that no one ever sees. The reality is that your love for others manifests in tangible ways. Verse 21 says, those who do such things, do things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In this book of Galatians that's all centered around the gospel work of God's reconciliation, here Paul turns the corner and says, here's what the gospel looks like in the life of a believer. 
amid the discussion of the heart of the gospel being the active rest of a believer in God's work, not the inheritance of works, Paul says, this is what you do. This is what comes out of that. Not because this work earns you God's favor, but because it is the evidence of the life lived in the application of God's favor. When I'm a son of God, delighted in and fulfilled by the spiritual revelation of my need for a Savior and the satisfaction of that need met in Jesus Christ, I will stop seeking application in someone else. I stop using people in relationships, and my love for God transforms my relationships into genuine and pure loving relationships. That's how the gospel transforms relationships. I bought a car recently. Before I bought that car, I'd been shopping for a car, and I needed a car that met several criteria. It needed to be large enough for my huge family. It needed to be right around 50,000 miles, and it needed to be a specific dollar amount. And I searched many dealerships. I went to many websites, searched high and low for days and days and days until I finally found the right one. And when I found it, I was glad to buy it because it fit all of the criteria. It was big enough, the mileage was right, and it was the right price. And the next day, I woke up, and you know what I didn't do? I didn't search for a car. And the reason I didn't continue to search for a car is because I had found what I was looking for, that thing that I needed. Well, the gospel works that same way. When you find the gospel... It satisfies all of your needs, and the searching stops. You have believed that the gospel checks all of the boxes of your most pressing needs, and you end your search. You don't have to use others, in other words, for sexual immorality, for impurity, for idolatry, and on and on and on. Your needs are met in Christ. And if you continue to search then either the gospel is defective or it isn't meeting your needs. So where's the problem? Is the gospel defective? Is it bad news that's been miscategorized? Is it 2,000 years of church history that's been wrong about the gospel? Have men gone to their death through misidentification? Or is it more likely that it isn't meeting your needs because you haven't bought the gospel in its full breadth. Paul says that you don't know the breadth of the gospel if it hasn't affected your relationships. If you continue to do sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and so on, the gospel is not advice to straighten up from these things. It's the spiritual application of the good news of Christ's satisfaction in God that keeps you satisfied in God and away from gratification in those areas. Therefore, evidence of your love for God is in your love for your neighbor. It runs parallel to it. And that love manifests in a list, the list that we find here in the fruit of the Spirit, in specific ways that we display love as we're loving God in specific ways that we do not. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit that comes from 
loving God in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When I am totally loved and accepted, when I'm satisfied in the gospel, at peace with God, and so on, those things come out of me and are displayed as I interact with others. Paul Tripp uses a simple illustration. He says, when your cup of water spills, what comes out? Well, water, but why water? Because that's what was in the cup. When you're in relationships, your church is often, or your cup is often spilled. What comes out of your cup when it's spilled? Is it love? Is it joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? If it's not those things that you see, go back to the gospel. That's the deficiency. You know, we love lists, don't we? We're so quick to turn this into a, a list of things that I can do. If I just follow this list and check them off the box, then I'll be pleasing to God. And lists in that way can easily become our gospel. But the response of the fruit of the Spirit is not to go and try to be more loving to go and try to be more joyful, to go and try to be more peaceable and so on. It's not to clench your fists and work really hard and and make those things come out. If you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the answer is to go back to the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ has come to take your sin debt, to take the wrath of God away from you, and he placed it upon his shoulders and died in your place so that you might be fully loved and fully accepted as a child of God. And when you don't see the fruit of the Spirit, you're living in the flesh. Go back to the gospel. Go back to what God says about you. And then let that affect your relationships. It's easy to run off the grid like David Austin when relationships are hard when we've been wounded, when we don't see fruit in our life. But God has given us relationships to show us our love for him and how the gospel is being pressed into our heart. I would urge you, church, do not go off the grid in your relationships. Turn back into the church and consider how the gospel is at work in your life by the way you're loving the church. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the truth that Jesus Christ has sealed us as your children because of his work. Father, let us rest in that gospel truth. In Jesus' name, amen.